This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. The second part of Chapter 3, Part 2. Many of the indigenous tribes of Sarawak are firmly persuaded that were the wives to commit adultery while their husbands are searching for camphor in the jungle, the camphor obtained by the men would evaporate. Husbands can discover, by certain knots in the tree, when their wives are unfaithful, and it is said that in former days many women were killed by jealous husbands on no better evidence than that of these knots. Further, the wives dare not touch a comb while their husbands are away collecting the camphor, for if they did so, the interstices between the fibres of the tree, instead of being filled with the precious crystals, would be empty like the spaces between the teeth of a comb. In the Kay Islands, to the south-west of New Guinea, as soon as a vessel that is about to sail for a distant port has been launched, the part of the beach on which it lay is covered as speedily as possible with palm branches and becomes sacred. No one may thenceforth cross that spot till the ship comes home. To cross it sooner would cause the vessel to perish. Moreover, all the time that the voyage lasts, three or four young girls, specially chosen for the duty, are supposed to remain in sympathetic connection with the mariners, and to contribute by their behaviour to the safety and success of the voyage. On no account, except for the most necessary purpose, may they quit the room that has been assigned to them. More than that, so long as the vessel is believed to be at sea, they must remain absolutely motionless, crouched on their mats, with their hands clasped behind their knees. They may not turn their heads to the left or to the right, or make any other movement whatsoever. If they did, it would cause the boat to pitch and toss, and they may not eat any sticky stuff such as rice boiled in coconut milk, for the stickiness of the food would clog the passage of the boat through the water. When the sailors are supposed to have reached their destination, the strictness of these rules is somewhat relaxed, but during the whole time that the voyage lasts, the girls are forbidden to eat fish which have sharp bones or stings, such as the stingray, lest their friends at sea should be involved in sharp, stinging trouble. Where beliefs like these prevail, as to the sympathetic connection between friends at a distance, we need not wonder that above everything else war, with its stern yet stirring appeal to some of the deepest and tenderest of human emotions, should quicken in the anxious relations left behind a desire to turn the sympathetic bond to the utmost account for the benefit of the dear ones who may at any moment be fighting and dying far away. Hence, to secure an end so natural and laudable, friends at home are apt to resort to devices which will strike us as pathetic or ludicrous, according as we consider their object or the means adopted to effect it. Thus, in some districts of Borneo, when a Dayak is out head-hunting, his wife, or if he is unmarried, his sister, must wear a sword day and night in order that he may always be thinking of his weapons. And she may not sleep during the day, nor go to bed before two in the morning, lest her husband or brother should thereby be surprised in his sleep by an enemy. 
among the sea dyaks of Banting in Sarawak. The women strictly observe an elaborate code of rules while the men are away fighting. Some of the rules are negative, and some are positive, but all alike are based on the principles of magical homeopathy and telepathy. Amongst them are the following. The women must wake very early in the morning and open the windows as soon as it is light, otherwise their absent husbands will oversleep themselves. The women may not oil their hair, or the men will slip. The women may neither sleep nor doze by day, or the men will be drowsy on the march. The women must cook and scatter popcorn on the veranda every morning, so will the men be agile in their movements. The rooms must be kept very tidy, all boxes being placed near the walls, for if anyone were to stumble over them, the absent husbands would fall, and be at the mercy of the foe. At every meal a little rice must be left in the pot and put aside, so will the men far away always have something to eat and need never go hungry. On no account may the women sit at the loom till their legs grow cramped, otherwise their husbands will likewise be stiff in their joints and unable to rise up quickly or to run away from the foe. So, in order to keep their husbands' joints supple, the women often vary their labours at the loom by walking up and down the veranda. Further, they may not cover up their faces, or the men would not be able to find their way through the tall grass or jungle. Again, the women may not sew with a needle, or the men will tread on the sharp spikes set by the enemy in the path. Should a wife prove unfaithful while her husband is away, he will lose his life in the enemy's country. Some years ago, all these rules and more were observed by the women of Banting, while their husbands were fighting for the English against rebels. But alas, these tender precautions availed them little, for many a man whose faithful wife was keeping watch and ward for him at home found a soldier's grave. In the island of Timor, while war is being waged, the high priest never quits the temple. His food is brought to him or cooked inside. Day and night he must keep the fire burning, for if he were to let it die out, disaster would befall the warriors, and would continue so long as the hearth was cold. Moreover, he must drink only hot water during the time the army is absent, for every draught of cold water would damp the spirits of the people, so that they could not vanquish the enemy. In the Kai Islands, when the warriors have departed, the women return indoors and bring out certain baskets containing fruits and stones, these fruits and stones they anoint and place on a board, murmuring as they do so, O Lord Sun, Moon, let the bullets rebound from our husbands, brothers, betrothed, and other relations, just as raindrops rebound from these objects which are smeared with oil. As soon as the first shot is heard, the baskets are put aside, and the women, seizing their fans, rush out of the houses. Then, waving their fans in the direction of the enemy, they run through the village, while they sing, O oh, golden fans, let our bullets hit, and those of the enemy miss. In this custom, the ceremony of anointing stones, in order that the bullets may recoil from the men like raindrops from the stones, is a piece of pure homeopathic or imitative magic. But the prayer to the sun, that he will be pleased to give effect to the charm, is a religious and perhaps later addition. 
the waving of the fans seems to be a charm to direct the bullets towards or away from their mark, according as they are discharged from the guns of friends or foes. An old historian of Madagascar informs us that, while the men are at the wars, and until their return, the women and girls cease not day and night to dance, and neither lie down nor take food in their own houses. And although they are very voluptuously inclined, they would not for anything in the world have an intrigue with another man while their husband is at the war, believing firmly that if that happened their husband would be either killed or wounded. They believe that by dancing they impart strength, courage and good fortune to their husbands. Accordingly, during such times they give themselves no rest, and this custom they observe very religiously. Among the Chi-speaking people of the Gold Coast, the wives of men who are away with the army paint themselves white and adorn their persons with beads and charms. On the day when a battle is expected to take place, they run about armed with guns or sticks carved to look like guns, and taking green pawpaws, fruits shaped somewhat like a melon, they hack them with knives, as if they were chopping off the heads of the foe. The pantomime is no doubt merely an imitative charm to enable the men to do to the enemy as the women do to the pawpaws. In the West African town of Framin, while the Ashanti war was raging some years ago, Mr. Fitzgerald Marriott saw a dance performed by women whose husbands had gone as carriers to the war. They were painted white and wore nothing but a short petticoat. At their head was a shriveled old sorceress in a very short white petticoat, her black hair arranged in a sort of long projecting horn, and her black face, breasts, arms and legs profusely adorned with white circles and crescents all carried long white brushes made of buffalo or horse-tails, and as they danced they sang, Our husbands have gone to a shanty-land. May they sweep their enemies off the face of the earth. Among the Thompson Indians of British Columbia, when the men were on the war-path, the women performed dances at frequent intervals. These dances were believed to ensure the success of the expedition. The dancers flourished their knives, threw long, sharp-pointed sticks forward, or drew sticks with hooked ends repeatedly backward and forward. Throwing the sticks forward was symbolic of piercing or warding off the enemy, and drawing them back was symbolic of drawing their own men from danger. The hook at the end of the stick was particularly well adapted to serve the purpose of a life-saving apparatus. The women always pointed their weapons towards the enemy's country. They painted their faces red and sang as they danced, and they prayed to the weapons to preserve their husbands and help them to kill many foes. Some had eagle down stuck on the points of their sticks. When the dance was over, these weapons were hidden. If a woman whose husband was at the war thought she saw hair or a piece of scalp on the weapon when she took it out, she knew that her husband had killed an enemy. But if she saw a stain of blood on it, she knew he was wounded or dead. When the men of the Yuki tribe in California were away fighting, the women at home did not sleep. They danced continually in a circle, chanting and waving leafy wands. For they said that if they danced all the time, their husbands would not grow tired. Among the Haida Indians of the Queen Charlotte Islands, when the men had gone to war, 
the women at home would get up very early in the morning and pretend to make war by falling upon their children and feigning to take them for slaves. This was supposed to help their husbands to go and do likewise. If a wife were unfaithful to her husband while he was away on the war-path, he would probably be killed. For ten nights all the women at home lay with their heads towards the point of the compass to which the war-canoes had paddled away. Then they changed about, for the warriors were supposed to be coming home across the sea. At Masset the Haida women danced and sang war-songs all the time their husbands were away at the wars, and they had to keep everything about them in a certain order. It was thought that a wife might kill her husband by not observing these customs. When a band of Carib Indians of the Orinoco had gone on the war-path, their friends left in the village used to calculate as nearly as they could the exact moment when the absent warriors would be advancing to attack the enemy. Then they took two lads, laid them down on a bench, and inflicted a most severe scourging on their bare backs. This the youths submitted to without a murmur, supported in their sufferings by the firm conviction in which they had been bred from childhood, that on the constancy and fortitude with which they bore the cruel ordeal depended the valour and success of their comrades in the battle. Among the many beneficent uses to which a mistaken ingenuity has applied the principle of homeopathic or imitative magic is that of causing trees and plants to bear fruit in due season. In Thuringen, the man who sows flax carries the seed in a long bag which reaches from his shoulders to his knees, and he walks with long strides so that the bag sways to and fro on his back. It is believed that this will cause the flax to wave in the wind. In the interior of Sumatra, rice is sown by women who, in sowing, let their hair hang loose down their back, in order that the rice may grow luxuriantly and have long stalks. Similarly, in ancient Mexico, a festival was held in honour of the goddess of maize, or the long-haired mother, as she was called. It began at the time when the plant had attained its full growth, and fibres shooting forth from the top of the green ear indicated that the grain was fully formed. During this festival the women wore their long hair unbound, shaking and tossing it in the dances which were the chief feature in the ceremonial, in order that the tassel of the maize might grow in like profusion, that the grain might be correspondingly large and flat, and that the people might have abundance. In many parts of Europe, dancing or leaping high in the air are approved homeopathic modes of making the crops grow high. Thus, in Franche-Comté, they say that you should dance at the carnival in order to make the hemp grow tall. The notion that a person can influence a plant homeopathically by his act or condition comes out clearly in a remark made by a Malay woman. Being asked why she stripped the upper part of her body naked in reaping the rice, she explained that she did it to make the rice husks thinner, as she was tired of pounding thick-husked rice. Clearly, she thought that the less clothing she wore, the less husk there would be on the rice. The magic virtue of a pregnant woman to communicate fertility is known to Bavarian and Austrian peasants, who think that if you give the first fruit of a tree to a woman with child to eat, the tree will bring forth abundantly next year. On the other hand, the Baganda believe 
that a barren wife infects her husband's garden with her own sterility, and prevents the trees from bearing fruit. Hence a childless woman is generally divorced. The Greeks and Romans sacrificed pregnant victims to the goddesses of the corn and of the earth, doubtless in order that the earth might teem and the corn swell in the ear. When a Catholic priest remonstrated with the Indians of the Orinoco on allowing their women to sow the fields in the blazing sun with infants at their breasts, the men answered, Father, you don't understand these things, and that is why they vex you. You know that women are accustomed to bear children, and that we men are not. When the women sow, the stalk of the maize bears two or three ears, the root of the yucca yields two or three basketfuls, and everything multiplies in proportion. Now why is that? Simply because the women know how to bring forth, and know how to make the seed which they sow bring forth also. Let them sow then. We men don't know as much about it as they do. Thus, on the theory of homeopathic magic, a person can influence vegetation, either for good or for evil, according to the good or the bad character of his acts or states. For example, a fruitful woman makes plants fruitful. A barren woman makes them barren. Hence this belief in the noxious and infectious nature of certain personal qualities or accidents has given rise to a number of prohibitions or rules of avoidance. People abstain from doing certain things, lest they should homeopathically infect the fruits of the earth with their own undesirable state or condition. All such customs of abstention or rules of avoidance are examples of negative magic or taboo. Thus, for example, arguing from what may be called the infectiousness of personal acts or states, the Galelareze say that you ought not to shoot with a bow and arrows under a fruit tree, or the tree will cast its fruit, even as the arrows fall to the ground, and that when you are eating watermelon, you ought not to mix the pips which you spit out of your mouth with the pips which you have put aside to serve as seed. For if you do, though the pips you spat out may certainly spring up and blossom, yet the blossoms will keep falling off, just as the pips fell from your mouth, and thus these pips will never bear fruit. Precisely the same train of thought leads the Bavarian peasant to believe that if he allows the graft of a fruit tree to fall on the ground, the tree that springs from that graft will let its fruit fall untimely. When the chams of Cochin China are sowing their dry rice fields and desire that no shower should fall, they eat their rice dry in order to prevent rain from spoiling the crop. In the foregoing cases, a person is supposed to influence vegetation homeopathically. He infects trees or plants with qualities or accidents, good or bad, resembling and derived from his own. But on the principle of homeopathic magic, the influence is mutual. The plant can infect the man just as much as the man can infect the plant. In magic, as I believe in physics, action and reaction are equal and opposite. The Cherokee Indians are adepts in practical botany of the homeopathic sort. Thus, wiry roots of the catgut plant are so tough that they can almost stop a ploughshare in the furrow. Hence, Cherokee women wash their heads with a decoction of the roots to make the hair strong, and Cherokee ball players wash themselves with it to toughen their muscles. 
It is a Galilarese belief that if you eat a fruit which has fallen to the ground, you will yourself contract a disposition to stumble and fall, and that if you partake of something which has been forgotten, such as a sweet potato left in the pot, or a banana in the fire, you will become forgetful. The Galilarese are also of opinion that if a woman were to consume two bananas growing from a single head, she would give birth to twins. The Guarani Indians of South America thought that a woman would become a mother of twins if she ate a double grain of millet. In Vedic times, a curious application of this principle supplied a charm by which a banished prince might be restored to his kingdom. He had to eat food cooked on a fire which was fed with wood which had grown out of the stump of a tree which had been cut down. The recuperative power manifested by such a tree would in due course be communicated through the fire to the food, and so to the prince who ate the food which was cooked on the fire which was fed with the wood which grew out of the tree. The Sundanese think that if a house is built of the wood of thorny trees, the life of the people who dwell in that house will likewise be thorny and full of trouble. There is a fruitful branch of homeopathic magic which works by means of the dead, for just as the dead can neither see nor hear nor speak, so you may, on homeopathic principles, render people blind, deaf and dumb by the use of dead men's bones or anything else that is tainted by the infection of death. Thus, amongst the Galerese, when a young man goes a-wooing at night, he takes a little earth from a grave and strews it on the roof of his sweetheart's house, just above the place where her parents sleep. This, he fancies, will prevent them from waking while he converses with his beloved, since the earth from the grave will make them sleep as sound as the dead. Burglars in all ages and many lands have been patrons of this species of magic, which is very useful to them in the exercise of their profession. Thus a South Slavonian housebreaker sometimes begins operations by throwing a dead man's bone over the house, saying, with pungent sarcasm, As this bone may waken, so may these people waken. After that, not a soul in the house can keep his or her eyes open. Similarly, in Java, the burglar takes earth from a grave and sprinkles it round the house which he intends to rob. This throws the inmates into a deep sleep. With the same intention, a Hindu will strew ashes from a pyre at the door of the house. Indians of Peru scatter the dust of dead men's bones, and Ruthenian burglars remove the marrow from a human shinbone, pour tallow into it, and having kindled the tallow, march thrice round the house with this candle burning, which causes the inmates to sleep a death-like sleep. Or the Ruthenian will make a flute out of a human leg-bone and play upon it, whereupon all persons within hearing are overcome with drowsiness. The Indians of Mexico employed for this maleficent purpose the left forearm of a woman who had died in giving birth to her first child, but the arm had to be stolen. With it they beat the ground before they entered the house which they designed to plunder. This caused everyone in the house to lose all power of speech and motion. They were as dead, hearing and seeing everything, but perfectly powerless. Some of them, however, really slept, and even snored. In Europe similar properties were ascribed to the hand of glory, which was the dried and pickled hand of a man who had been hanged. 
If a candle made of the fat of a malefactor who had also died on the gallows was lighted and placed in the hand of glory as in a candlestick, it rendered motionless all persons to whom it was presented. They could not stir a finger any more than if they were dead. Sometimes the dead man's hand is itself the candle, or rather a bunch of candles, all its withered fingers being set on fire. But should any member of the household be awake, one of the fingers will not kindle. Such nefarious lights can only be extinguished with milk. Often it is prescribed that the thief's candle should be made of the finger of a newborn, or, still better, unborn child. Sometimes it is thought needful that the thief should have one such candle for every person in the house, for if he has one candle too little, somebody in the house will wake and catch him. Once these tapers begin to burn, there is nothing but milk that will put them out. In the seventeenth century, robbers used to murder pregnant women in order thus to extract candles from their wombs. An ancient Greek robber or burglar thought he could silence and put to flight the fiercest watchdogs by carrying with him a brand plucked from a funeral pyre. Again, Servian and Bulgarian women who chafe at the restraints of domestic life will take the copper coins from the eyes of a corpse, wash them in wine or water, and give the liquid to their husbands to drink. After swallowing it, the husband will be as blind to his wife's peccadilloes as the dead man was on whose eyes the coins were laid. Further, animals are often conceived to possess qualities or properties which might be useful to man, and homeopathic or imitative magic seeks to communicate these properties to human beings in various ways. Thus some Betuanas wear a ferret as a charm, because, being very tenacious of life, it will make them difficult to kill. Others wear a certain insect, mutilated but living, for a similar purpose. Yet other Betuana warriors wear the hair of a hornless ox among their own hair, and the skin of a frog on their mantle, because a frog is slippery, and the ox, having no horns, is hard to catch, so the man who is provided with these charms believes that he will be as hard to hold as the ox and the frog. Again, it seems plain that a South African warrior who twists tufts of rat's hair among his own curly black locks will have just as many chances of avoiding the enemy's spear as the nimble rat has of avoiding things thrown at it. Hence, in these regions, rat's hair is in great demand when war is expected. One of the ancient books of India prescribes that when a sacrifice is offered for victory, the earth out of which the altar is to be made should be taken from a place where a boar has been wallowing, since the strength of the boar will be in that earth. When you are playing the one-stringed lute and your fingers are stiff, the thing to do is to catch some long-legged field spiders and roast them, and then rub your fingers with the ashes. That will make your fingers as lithe and nimble as the spider's legs. At least so think the Galilarese. To bring back a runaway slave, an Arab will trace a magic circle on the ground, stick a nail in the middle of it, and attach a beetle by a thread to the nail, taking care that the sex of the beetle is that of the fugitive. As the beetle crawls round and round, it will coil the thread about the nail, thus shortening the tether and drawing nearer to the centre at every circuit. So, by virtue of homeopathic magic, 
the runaway slave will be drawn back to his master. Among the western tribes of British New Guinea, a man who has killed a snake will burn it and smear his legs with the ashes when he goes into the forest, for no snake will bite him for some days afterwards. If a South Slavonian has a mind to pilfer and steal at market, he has nothing to do but to burn a blind cat and then throw a pinch of its ashes over the person with whom he is higgling. After that he can take what he likes from the booth, and the owner will not be a bit the wiser, having become as blind as the deceased cat with whose ashes he has been sprinkled. The thief may even ask boldly, Did I pay for it? and the deluded huckster will reply, Why, certainly! Equally simple and effectual is the expedient adopted by the natives of Central Australia who desire to cultivate their beards. They prick the chin all over with a pointed bone, and then stroke it carefully with a magic stick or stone, which represents a kind of rat that has very long whiskers. The virtue of these whiskers naturally passes into the representative stick or stone, and thence by an easy transition to the chin, which, consequently, is soon adorned with a rich growth of beard. The ancient Greeks thought that to eat the flesh of the wakeful nightingale would prevent a man from sleeping, that to smear the eyes of a blear-sighted person with the gall of an eagle would give him the eagle's vision, and that a raven's eggs would restore the blackness of the raven to silvery hair. Only the person who adopted this last mode of concealing the ravages of time had to be most careful to keep his mouth full of oil at the time he applied the eggs to his venerable locks, else his teeth, as well as his hair, would be dyed raven black, and no amount of scrubbing and scouring would avail to whiten them again. The hair restorer was in fact a shade too powerful, and in applying it you might get more than you bargained for. The Wichol Indians admire the beautiful markings on the backs of serpents. Hence, when a Wichol woman is about to weave or embroider, her husband catches a large serpent and holds it in a cleft stick, while the woman strokes the reptile with one hand down the whole length of its back. Then she passes the same hand over her forehead and eyes that she may be able to work as beautiful patterns in the web as the markings on the back of the serpent. On the principle of homeopathic magic, inanimate things, as well as plants and animals, may diffuse blessing or bane around them, according to their own intrinsic nature, and the skill of the wizard to tap or dam, as the case may be, the stream of weal or woe. In Samarkand, women give a baby sugar candy to suck, and put glue in the palm of its hand, in order that, when the child grows up, his words may be sweet, and precious things may stick to his hands as if they were glued. The Greeks thought that a garment made from the fleece of a sheep that had been torn by a wolf would hurt the wearer, setting up an itch or irritation in his skin. They were also of the opinion that if a stone which had been bitten by a dog were dropped in wine, it would make all who drank of that wine fall out amongst themselves. Among the Arabs of Moab, a childless woman often borrows the robe of a woman who has had many children, hoping with the robe to acquire the fruitfulness of its owner. The Kaffirs of Sofala in East Africa had a great dread of being struck with anything hollow such as a reed or straw, 
and greatly preferred being thrashed with a good thick cudgel or an iron bar, even though it hurt very much. For they thought that if a man were beaten with anything hollow, his inside would waste away till he died. In eastern seas there is a large shell which the Buginese of Celebes call the old man, Kajawo. On Fridays they turn these old men upside down and place them on the thresholds of their houses, believing that whoever then steps over the threshold of the house will live to be old. At initiation a Brahmin boy is made to tread with his right foot on a stone, while the words are repeated, Tread on this stone, like a stone be firm and the same ceremony is performed, with the same words, by a Brahman bride at her marriage. In Madagascar, a mode of counteracting the levity of fortune is to bury a stone at the foot of the heavy house-post. The common custom of swearing upon a stone may be based partly on a belief that the strength and stability of the stone lend confirmation to an oath. Thus, the old Danish historian, Saxo Grammaticus, tells us that the ancients, when they were to choose a king, were wont to stand on stones planted in the ground, and to proclaim their votes, in order to foreshadow from the steadfastness of the stones that the deed would be lasting. But while a general magical efficacy may be supposed to reside in all stones, by reason of their common properties of weight and solidity, special magical virtues are attributed to particular stones or kinds of stone in accordance with their individual or specific qualities of shape and colour for example the indians of peru employed certain stones for the increase of maize others for the increase of potatoes and others again for the increase of cattle the stones used to make maize grow were fashioned in the likeness of cobs of maize and the stones destined to multiply cattle had the shape of sheep. In some parts of Melanesia a like belief prevails that certain sacred stones are endowed with miraculous powers which correspond in their nature to the shape of the stone. Thus a piece of water-worn coral on the beach often bears a surprising likeness to a breadfruit. Hence in the Banks Islands a man who finds such a coral will lay it at the root of one of his breadfruit trees in the expectation that it will make the tree bear well. If the result answers his expectation, he will then, for a proper remuneration, take stones of less marked character from other men and let them lie near his, in order to imbue them with the magic virtue which resides in it. Similarly, a stone with little discs upon it is good to bring in money, and if a man found a large stone with a number of small ones under it, like a sow among her litter, he was sure that to offer money upon it would bring him pigs. In these and similar cases, the Melanesians ascribe the marvellous power not to the stone itself, but to its indwelling spirit, and sometimes, as we have just seen, a man endeavours to propitiate the spirit by laying down offerings on the stone. But the conception of spirits that must be propitiated lies outside the sphere of magic and within that of religion, where such a conception is found, as here, in conjunction with purely magical ideas and practices, the latter may generally be assumed to be the original stock on which the religious conception has been at some later time engrafted. 
for there are strong grounds for thinking that in the evolution of thought magic has preceded religion. But to this point we shall return presently. The ancients set great store on the magical qualities of precious stones. Indeed, it has been maintained, with great show of reason, that such stones were used as amulets long before they were worn as mere ornaments. Thus the Greeks gave the name of tree-agate to a stone which exhibits tree-like markings, and they thought that if two of these gems were tied to the horns or necks of oxen at the plough, the crop would be sure to be plentiful. Again they recognized a milkstone which produced an abundant supply of milk in women, if only they drank it dissolved in honey-mead. Milkstones are used for the same purpose by Greek women in Crete and Melos at the present day. In Albania, nursing mothers wear the stones in order to ensure an abundant flow of milk. Again, the Greeks believed in a stone which cured snake bites, and hence was named the snake stone. To test its efficacy, you had only to grind the stone to powder and sprinkle the powder on the wound. The wine-coloured amethyst received its name, which means not drunken, because it was supposed to keep the wearer of it sober, and two brothers who desired to live at unity were advised to carry magnets about with them, which, by drawing the twain together, would clearly prevent them from falling out. The ancient books of the Hindus lay down a rule that after sunset on his marriage night a man should sit silent with his wife till the stars begin to twinkle in the sky. When the pole star appears, he should point it out to her, and addressing the star, say, Firm art thou, I see thee, the firm one, firm be thou with me, O thriving one. Then, turning to his wife, he should say, To me Brihaspati has given thee, obtaining offspring through me, thy husband, live with me a hundred autumns. The intention of the ceremony is plainly to guard against the fickleness of fortune and the instability of earthly bliss by the steadfast influence of the constant star. It is a wish expressed in Keats's last sonnet. Bright star, would I were steadfast as thou art, not in lone splendour hung aloft the night. Dwellers by the sea cannot fail to be impressed by the sight of its ceaseless ebb and flow, and are apt on the principles of that rude philosophy of sympathy and resemblance which here engages our attention, to trace a subtle relation, a secret harmony, between its tides and the life of man, of animals and of plants. In the flowing tide they see not merely a symbol, but a cause of exuberance, of prosperity and of life, while in the ebbing tide they discern a real agent as well as a melancholy emblem of failure, of weakness and of death. The Breton peasant fancies that clover sown when the tide is coming in will grow well, but that, if the plant be sown at low water, or when the tide is going out, it will never reach maturity, and that the cows which feed on it will burst. His wife believes that the best butter is made when the tide has just turned, and is beginning to flow, that milk which foams in the churn will go on foaming till the hour of high water is past, and that water drawn from the well, or milk extracted from the cow, while the tide is rising, will boil up in the pot or saucepan, and overflow into the fire. According to some of the ancients, the skins of seals, even after they have been parted from their bodies, 
remained in secret sympathy with the sea, and were observed to ruffle when the tide was on the ebb. Another ancient belief, attributed to Aristotle, was that no creature can die except at ebb tide. The belief, if we can trust Pliny, was confirmed by experience, so far as regards human beings, on the coast of France. Philostratus also assures us that at Cadiz, dying people never yielded up the ghost while the water was high. A like fancy still lingers in some parts of Europe. On the Cantabrian coast, they think that persons who die of chronic or acute disease expire at the moment when the tide begins to recede. In Portugal, all along the coast of Wales, and on some parts of the coast of Brittany, a belief is said to prevail that people are born when the tide comes in, and die when it goes out. Dickens attests the existence of the same superstition in England. "'People can't die along the coast,' said Mr. Peggotty, "'except when the tide's pretty nigh out. They can't be born unless it's pretty nigh in, not properly born till flood.' The belief that most deaths happen at ebb tide is said to be held along the east coast of England from Northumberland to Kent. Shakespeare must have been familiar with it, for he makes Falstaff die even just between twelve and one, e'en at the turning o' the tide. We meet the belief again on the Pacific coast of North America, among the Hyders. Whenever a good Hyder is about to die, he sees a canoe manned by some of his dead friends, who come with the tide to bid him welcome to the spirit land. Come with us now, they say, for the tide is about to ebb, and we must depart. At Port Stephens, in New South Wales, the natives always buried their dead at flood tide, never at ebb, lest the retiring water should bear the soul of the departed to some distant country. To ensure a long life, the Chinese have recourse to certain complicated charms, which concentrate in themselves the magical essence emanating, on homeopathic principles, from times and seasons, from persons and from things. The vehicles employed to transmit these happy influences are no other than grave clothes. These are provided by many Chinese in their lifetime, and most people have them cut out and sewn by an unmarried girl, or a very young woman, wisely calculating that since such a person is likely to live a great many years to come, a part of her capacity to live long must surely pass into the clothes, and thus stave off for many years the time when they shall be put to their proper use. Further, the garments are made by preference in a year which has an intercalary month. For to the Chinese mind it seems plain that grave clothes made in a year which is unusually long will possess the capacity of prolonging life in an unusually high degree. Amongst the clothes there is one robe in particular on which special pains have been lavished to imbue it with this priceless quality. It is a long silken gown of the deepest blue colour with the word longevity embroidered all over it in threads of gold. To present an aged parent with one of these costly and splendid mantles, known as longevity garments, is esteemed by the Chinese an act of filial piety and a delicate mark of attention. As the garment purports to prolong the life of its owner, he often wears it, especially on festive occasions, 
in order to allow the influence of longevity created by the many golden letters with which it is bespangled to work their full effect upon his person. On his birthday, above all, he hardly ever fails to don it, for in China common sense bids a man lay in a large stock of vital energy on his birthday, to be expended in the form of health and vigour during the rest of the year. Attired in the gorgeous pall, and absorbing its blessed influence at every pore, the happy owner receives complacently the congratulations of friends and relations, who warmly express their admiration of these magnificent ceremonies and of the filial piety which prompted the children to bestow so beautiful and useful a present on the author of their being. Another application of the maxim that like produces like is seen in the Chinese belief that the fortunes of a town are deeply affected by its shape, and that they must vary according to the character of the thing which that shape most nearly resembles. Thus it is related that long ago the town of Tsuen Chefu, the outlines of which are like those of a carp, frequently fell a prey to the depredations of the neighbouring city of Yung Chun, which is shaped like a fishing net, until the inhabitants of the former town conceived the plan of erecting two tall pagodas in their midst. These pagodas, which still tower above the city of Tsuen Chefu, have ever since exercised their happiest influence over its destiny by intercepting the imaginary net before it could descend and entangle in its meshes the imaginary carp. Some forty years ago, the wise men of Shanghai were much exercised to discover the cause of a local rebellion. On careful inquiry, they ascertained that the rebellion was due to the shape of a large new temple which had most unfortunately been built in the shape of a tortoise, an animal of the very worst character. The difficulty was serious, the danger was pressing, for to pull down the temple would have been impious, and to let it stand as it was would be to court a succession of similar or worse disasters. However, the genius of the local professors of geomancy, rising to the occasion, triumphantly surmounted the difficulty and obviated the danger. By filling up two wells, which represented the eyes of the tortoise, they at once blinded that disreputable animal, and rendered him incapable of doing further mischief. Sometimes homeopathic or imitative magic is called in to annul an evil omen, by accomplishing it in mimicry. The effect is to circumvent destiny, by substituting a mock calamity for the real one. In Madagascar, this mode of cheating the fates is reduced to a regular system. Here every man's fortune is determined by the day or hour of his birth, and if that happens to be an unlucky one, his fate is sealed, unless the mischief can be extracted, as the phrase goes, by means of a substitute. The ways of extracting the mischief are various. For example, if a man is born on the first day of the second month, February, his house will be burnt down when he comes of age. To take time by the forelock and avoid this catastrophe, the friends of the infant will set up a shed in a field or in the cattle fold and burn it. If the ceremony is to be really effective, the child and his mother should be placed in the shed and only plucked, like brands, from the burning hut before it is too late. Again, dripping November is the month of tears, 
and he who is born in it is born to sorrow. But in order to disperse the clouds that thus gather over his future, he has nothing to do but to take the lid off a boiling pot and wave it about. The drops that fall from it will accomplish his destiny, and so prevent the tears from trickling from his eyes. Again, if fate has decreed that a young girl, still unwed, should see her children, still unborn, descend before her with sorrow to the grave, she can avert the calamity as follows. She kills a grasshopper, wraps it in a rag to represent a shroud, and mourns over it like Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted. Moreover, she takes a dozen or more other grasshoppers, and having removed some of their superfluous legs and wings, she lays them about their dead and shrouded fellow. The buzz of the tortured insects and the agitated motions of their mutilated limbs represent the shrieks and contortions of the mourners at a funeral. After burying the deceased grasshopper, she leaves the rest to continue their mourning till death release them from their pain and having bound up her dishevelled hair, she retires from the grave with the step and carriage of a person plunged in grief. Thenceforth she looks cheerfully forward to seeing her children survive her, for it cannot be that she should mourn and bury them twice over. Once more, if fortune has frowned on a man at his birth, and penury has marked him for her own, he can easily erase the mark in question by purchasing a couple of cheap pearls price three halfpence and burying them. For who but the rich of this world can thus afford to fling pearls away? End of the second part of chapter three, part two.